We are, we are going to look today and next week at the Great Commission. Now, you're going to spend a summer on it. You can spend a life on the Great Commission. The Great Commission is, is a summary of the teaching of Jesus in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascent into heaven. Those 40 days were wonderful, powerful days. They must have been the most enjoyable days of those men's lives and women's. But summarizing those 40 days is the, the statement by Matthew that, that in those days when he taught about the kingdom of God, which is what Luke says in Acts he taught, Matthew summarizes the teaching of those days in these verses. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. So please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Let's raise our hands and ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we pray that your word will carry power in our lives, changing us, transforming us. May my lips dwell on it faithfully, and may your Holy Spirit attend our, our hearts as we look at your word, giving it power. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It seems every, every movement of God which leads to a deepening understanding of his nature has a an edge to it that is not unanticipated by God, but certainly unanticipated by the people who are taking part in that movement of God. And that every movement of God, because of the wickedness of our hearts, has the ability to be transformed into the very opposite of what it was intended to be. And so you, you see this in scriptural history and you see it in post-scriptural history of the church as well. In scriptural history, you see the great work of God, um, creation and giving a charge to Adam and Eve. And that charge, which includes tending for the garden, obedience to God in all things, has one, one ban or one, one condition, and that is that they not eat from the fruit of the tree. But the very giving of it seems to, to cause the thing that is denied. And so the very saying, don't do this, leads Adam and Eve to do this. We find later when God comes to the Israelites, separating them from the peoples of the world, calls them out of Egypt and out of bondage, sends them into the wilderness and gives them the law in Sinai. The law, which is intended to be a revelation of the nature of God in all of its precepts and commandments um, becomes something different in the life of Israel. And so the ceremonies are taken and made the principal things and the commandments are diminished and they weigh and play the ceremonies against the commandments. And so they say, well, I'm keeping these rules. It doesn't matter what I do here. And they become like the Pharisees who, who clean the outside of the dish 
And because their outside is clean, they are not at all concerned about the inside. And, and so the law becomes something that leads people by their abuse of it into, into real sin, tremendous sin. In the same way in the New Testament, Jesus comes and, and the offer of grace and freedom from the ceremonial law that comes through Jesus by his abolishing that law, the law that condemns, um, that law becomes a reason and Paul has to confront people and say, do you believe that you can sin so that grace will more readily abound to you? And so the, the grace of God becomes an occasion for sinners to sin. Yeah, am I making sense? They, they say, look, we have grace, therefore let sin abound. This has been uh, a problem in the church for centuries, for millennia now. When the, when the church triumphed in a variety of ways, but in the triumph that led the, the church to, to become the central fact of human life for centuries, the the conversion of Constantine maybe being the, the marking point of the beginning of that era. Uh, baptism went from being something that marked you out for persecution to being something that marked you out as a, as a loyal member of the, of the Roman Empire. And it became a requirement for, for position. And it then became, instead of the thing that marked you out and made you someone who would suffer, it became a thing that you did which caused you not to have to worry about your disobedience. And so emperors like Constantine would wait until the end of their lives to be baptized because they'd say, ah, oh, it wipes me clean of all my sins. So I'm gonna wait until I'm on my deathbed and I'll be baptized. Very common thought. And it's, it's still a thought about baptism today. Luther came to confront that kind of thinking. God raised him up and he taught that salvation was by faith rather than by our own merit of works. And it was a wonderful deliverance from the tyranny of the works that had become the center of religious observance under Roman Catholicism prior to Luther. He set the world free, but that very freedom has caused us again, as we've done as people of God since time began, a reason, it has become a reason for us to say, I don't have to worry about what I do. In fact, to say, we, if we seek to obey God, we're not living by grace. We don't have the gospel because the gospel does not consist of obedience. Well, we we come this morning to the, the summary of Jesus' concluding teaching. His command to his closest friends, his followers, his disciples who are going to be apostles, who are going to be sent. And he say, says to them, in your going, therefore, it's not the command to go, it's wherever you are. Whatever your condition, wherever you go, and you're going to go, in your going, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In your going, 
Therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is a dual command. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, is first a command to those who are going. Because this is a definition of discipleship. Jesus is defining, if you make a disciple by baptizing and teaching obedience, then that is what defines you before you even go and do this job. It is the act, the life of discipleship, to be a baptized believer in Jesus Christ who obeys his commands. That is discipleship. So it is first a command to you and to me, a command that we be baptized and that we obey. And then that we go out and as baptized, believing, obedient disciples, we teach others to be like we are. This is what Jesus says. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Teaching them, baptizing them in all the going that we do, knowing that all authority has been given to Christ in heaven and on earth. All authority, he claims at the outset, is his. Every bit of authority, divine, human, physical, spiritual, has been given to Christ. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Very God of very God. Our King, the one who commands this, is the King of kings. And as a king... He is speaking to you, his servants. One day, raised to his right hand. But at this point in your life, what you need to know and I need to know is that we are slaves of a king. Called to obey him. Called to do his will. Called to lay down our lives as he laid down his life for us. This is his command. Obey me be baptized in my name and go and make disciples who are the same. God is speaking, therefore, in this. And I imagine to the disciples, these must have been the most, the most amazing, incredible days that they ever witnessed. If they thought it was one thing to witness Jesus in his earthly ministry going from place to place and working miracles, how much more thrilling and sobering was it to see this Jesus that you'd been with for three years, who you saw crucified and dead, who you knew was buried, raised from the dead, and now you know beyond any question he is God. Your friend is not just king and Lord, but God, and that God is your friend and he has given you a charge to fulfill. And those disciples from that point on live to fulfill this charge. This becomes the agenda for their lives. They do this thing and this thing really only. And they eat, they drink, they do all the other things that they have to do, but this is their focus. 
This is what they do. They go and they baptize and all that that implies. And they go and they teach observance of all that Jesus commands. So we must remember this is the word of our, of our king. This is the command of God. The God who laid down his life for you and for me. And then says to us, now, go and do what I've done with you with others. Make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Remembering the words that began, all authority is mine. I am the authority. Now, we turn this morning to the second part of making disciples. The first part is to baptize. And to baptize someone is to put a mark or a brand on their lives. A mark or a brand, a statement of ownership, a statement of belonging, a statement that you are included in a group. It is a sign of God's covenant with his people. And when you're baptized, God is, is placing upon you the statement that you belong to him. We think of baptism often as our statement, but it's not. It's God's statement. It's God's claim. It's God's authority. It's God's institution. Baptism, baptism belongs to God, not to man. And when a person is baptized, what it says, God and man joining in this act, is that the person, the baptized one, no longer belongs to himself, no longer belongs to the kingdom of the prince of this world of Satan, but he has been or she has been called out and made something entirely new and entirely different belonging to God. It's a statement of authority. It's a statement that I have gone from being under my own authority and my own rebellious will. I've gone from being under the kings of this world, no matter how much I obey them in the future. I have a greater Lord, and that Lord is God. Jesus Christ is my Lord. Jesus is my Lord, and this is what we're stating in baptism. We've lost sight of this in America today, probably because there's very little cost to being baptized. Some years ago, I was talking with a missionary friend who was a missionary in a Muslim country. And they were there under the protection as missionaries of the American government. It was a pro-American Muslim country. And so they knew that the worst that could happen to them likely in that country as they, as they taught people to obey Jesus and called people to be baptized was that they'd be kicked out and sent back to the United States, which would be a cost. But it was nothing compared with what they were asking for the, the Arabs of that country who were converting from Islam. They said, we almost can't call them to do it because it's so easy for us. But for them to be baptized very really means that they may die. This was the cost of baptism. In the early church, if you got baptized, you were saying sayonara to the emperor and to the worship of him. Augustus was not Augustus. He was just Caesar to you. And you were saying, I have a new king. And it was a statement that I'm ready to die. That my authority is gone. So we go from 
the statement of authority that's found in baptism, the statement that God is now my Lord and I serve him, which is implicit in baptism, should be a part of baptism, is always in God's intention what baptism means. To the second part of this, this commission, the second part and requirement of disciples, the way we make disciples, to make a rebel, to make an enemy of God into a follower, a disciple, a child of God, we must first baptize and then we must teach. We baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We teach obedience to all that Christ has commanded. We declare his authority in baptism. We declare that we are subject to his authority. We declare that we have repented of our past rebellion, our, sinless, our sinful ways, and that we are turning to Christ and his authority. And then we obey his commandments. We call people as we go about doing this work to be baptized, to declare that they are sinners and that they are leaving their ways of sin and turning to Jesus in faith. And then we say, now obey him. And we teach them, if we do this the way that Christ commands, to obey everything that he has commanded. Not a subset, not just the big rules, but everything he commanded. This is Christianity. This is the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not grace, grace, grace without obedience. The Christian faith is grace that empowers you to lead a new life. This is the Christian faith. A transformed life, a new birth, a new beginning, a new you. In every possible conceivable way. You are made new. So we declare the authority of God and in particular of Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in baptism. And then we teach his commandments. Now note that Jesus doesn't actually say that we are to teach his commandments, what I just said. That would be one thing. But do you notice the, the slight distinction between what I said and what the Bible actually says? The Bible doesn't say to teach the commandments of Christ. It says to teach what? I didn't hear it. It, it says to teach them to obey all the commandments. Well, obviously, the commandments is implicit. Teaching commandments is implicit in the command. But you're not to teach the commandments alone. You're to teach obedience. So if you are going to make disciples, if you are going to lead your children to know God, you're not just to teach God's law and say, this is what you should do. You are going to say, this is what you will do. I command you to obey God. You teach them to obey God's commandments, not just his commandments. If you have a faithful pastor, if you have faithful elders, if you have faithful teachers, they will teach you not simply this is what God says, but you should do this because this is what God says. You should change that because this is what God says. You should be this kind of person and not that kind of person because this is what God says. 
This is what it means to make disciples. It is to teach people to obey all that Christ has commanded. There is, at the very heart of the work of making a disciple, an imperative, a command, an authority. Our teaching comes from Christ. We make disciples who are led into obedience to Christ. Jesus defines what it means to make a disciple here. There's one constant in the Christian life across ages, across seas, across nations. Christians are known for bearing fruit. We see this all through the Gospels. Christians bear fruit. They may have different jobs. They may have different sexes. They may be married. They may be unmarried. They may be brilliant. They may be simple. But they bear fruit. They make disciples by declaring and teaching the authority of Jesus and leading others to obedience to him. This is the calling of Jesus. This is what he left you with. Go and make disciples. Baptize them in my name, the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. All authority is mine. Go out and use my authority. Be under my authority and use it. Now, you may do this only in your home with the children God gives you. You may not do it with a whole church. You may not do it with tens of thousands in an arena. You may do it in your home. It is just as important. And you are just as faithfully fulfilling this commission if you as a mother are simply teaching your children to obey God, to know God and to obey him. This is your work. This is your highest calling. You are every bit as important as the pastor of the church, as the evangelist on the stage. Your work is making disciples. You may be doing it more effectively than the pastor in a church with 5,000. This is your call. We make disciples. We do so by baptizing into him and by teaching obedience to him. We baptize in the name of the Trinity, calling the world to submit to the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we place the brand or the mark of God's ownership on you by baptizing you. It's like a slave in the Old Testament who wanted to stay with his master, a Hebrew slave, who would put his ear against the doorpost and the awl would be pushed through it with a hole in the earlobe, meaning I am a willing slave. This is baptism for you. I am a willing slave of the Savior of the world, of the King of kings and the Lord of hosts. I am willing. He gave his life for me. I will live for him. We declare his preeminent authority in baptism. And we declare it as well by teaching all those we speak to, all those we baptize to observe all that he's commanded us. Now the word that Jesus uses here is not, it's an interesting word. It's not a simple word of obedience. He doesn't say teach them to obey. In my version it says to keep. It may in yours say observe all that I commanded you. This word is a, a word that includes obedience, but it's more than that. Peter writes that God, using the same word, keeps disobedient angels in pits of darkness waiting for the day of judgment. God keeps them there. 
This is the same word Jesus uses for keep my commandments. Jude writes in verse 6 of Jude, and the angels who did not keep their own domain, using the same word, those who did not keep their domain, who did not observe, obey the, the restraints God had placed upon them, but abandoned their proper abode, he, God has kept, same word again, if they did not keep their place, God keeps them where he will store them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. It's far more than obey. It's keeping, guarding, being absolutely certain that we honor Christ by our obedience. We teach the commandments of Christ, all of them, but not just the commandments. We're commissioned and commanded by Jesus to teach the disciples we make to guard or observe carefully all that Christ has commanded. Now, I want to speak to you today about how we do not keep the Great Commission because to define something, we have to always confront the false definitions that are always out there. And as we go about keeping the Great Commission, we need to be clear on what Jesus says and what he does not say. It is of fundamental importance to understand what Jesus does and what he does not say is the process by which we make disciples. The process, we've said, has two parts. Baptizing into the Trinity, second, teaching obedience to all Jesus commanded. Note that it has two parts. Baptize into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that Christ commanded, to, to observe, to keep all that he commanded. Note what Jesus does not say is the way that we make disciples and thus fulfill this great commission. First, Jesus says nothing at all about your personality here. Now you may say, well, duh, but no, really, he doesn't. He doesn't say that you need to have a certain personality type to do this. And that in order to fulfill this, you need to be first this type of person so that you can baptize them and that you can teach them to obey so that you must, it's not assumed here that you have to be winsome. He doesn't mention winsomeness here. You know the word winsome? I saw um, a bunch of, of obituaries and in major newspapers of a, of a person who was a religious leader who recently died, and, and one of the things that kept on being said over and over again was that he was so powerful because he was winsome. Jesus does not tie winsomeness to this command. He does not say that in order to do this, you must be a certain type of person. Now, let me go... <laughs> And, and back off a little bit and say, if you do obey everything that Christ commands you, you're going to be a certain type of person. And that is you're going to be trustworthy, loyal, reliable, honorable. That does not mean that you're going to be winsome. Jesus... <laughs> In some respects, I think it's going to be blasphemous for me to say this, but it's, it's also scriptural, and I don't know whether I'm carrying coals to Newcastle telling you something you already know, or whether I'm going to offend you by saying, Jesus was not winsome. He was not a winsome guy. 
Nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus really was a pleasant dude, that people loved to be around, and that he was so nice that people just fell right into the lap of his teaching. It doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible says the prophecy of Isaiah concerning him was that Christ, for he, he that is Christ, grew up before him, that is the Father, for he grew up before him, growing in wisdom and stature before God and man. Christ grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. What's a root look like that comes out of parched ground? If you've planted anything in you, you, this, this season, it's not been a lot of rain. You know that you're, you're having to water it. And if the ground is parched, what you're getting is a scraggly, struggling plant. This is what a root out of parched ground looks like. Jesus grew up like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form. It's Speaking of him in the future, he will have. He has no stately form. What is a stately form? It's an impressive bearing. It's a, it's a, a gravitas, a mien of dignity. He has no stately form or majesty. They didn't look at him and say, oh, what a prince of men. That's what the Bible says. No stately form or majesty that we should look upon. He was not prepossessing. He didn't grab people and they go, oh. It wasn't a Saul. Head and shoulders above the crowd, handsome. It was more David, little guy, red face, ruddy, you know. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, his appearance was not the kind of appearance that makes people say, oh, I want to be with him. He didn't walk around like the man. Jesus may have been the man, but he sure didn't live like the man. Don't think Isaiah is speaking here only of physical looks. The way you strut. <laughs> the man who walks like the cock of the walk understands that he is something and it's out of his person that his appearance is derived. Jesus did not strut. He had no majesty. There was nothing kingly about him, not in stature nor in attitude, nor in the company he kept. He was not attractive of physical form or bearing or personality. He did not win people because of his personality. He won people because he was a man of authority. He had authority. Now, of course, being Christ, he was the embodiment of all Christian virtue, and he was a friend of friends and a glorious man. But this was not winsome. This did not lead the world to say, oh, I want to be with him. His authority did bring people to him. But as he used that authority with the crowds and as he taught with authority, he lost people. Because ultimately they were attracted by the authority and then they were repelled by the authority and they really didn't want to come under that authority. And so as he taught and as he made his authority clear and didn't mince words, people left. He was not winsome. 
He was powerful. He was an authority. He was God. But he wasn't John Lennon or Paul McCartney or Donald Trump. There was nothing about him that was winsome or impressive. I do not deny that to those possessing soft hearts whose eyes were open and ears able to hear divine truth that Jesus was deeply appealing. But that appeal was based on truth, not looks. On power, not affect. On authority, not personality. His power to win disciples was based on the authority he possessed. He was not a personality. He was an authority. Now you may think I'm casting a false dichotomy before you that you can be a personality and be an authority. No, it's not. You can either either choose to have an authority based in you and how cool you are and how winsome you are and how how good looking you are or you can as Jesus did have your authority be the Father the Holy Spirit Jesus did win crowds by his authority he did not win people by attractive form or winsome personality Now, we need to note this for two reasons. First, because Jesus calls his disciples to authority and not to personality. He calls you to preach and teach his authority, not your personality. Second, we must note this because it is impossible to exercise and proclaim authority yet at the same time seeking to be loved as a popular personality. Winsomeness, that thing seen as so essential for preaching Jesus today, is a personality trait. And thereby, it was not what Christ possessed. Indeed, it is the very opposite of what he commands of his disciples. I am not saying you can be unkind, you can be willfully offensive, you can be deliberately unfriendly or unattractive if you're going to make disciples. Jesus loved people, but he loved the children as much as he loved the important people. He loved the sinners as much as he loved the righteous. He didn't have that nose for the popular people that so many leaders have today. Nothing could be clearer in the commission of Christ. We are not called to preach and teach ourselves as though we are personally some sort of halfway house between sin and heaven. And that if we can get them to us, we've got them over the hump and now we can lead them on to heaven and Jesus. We are not that. Jesus warns against this idea by telling us as disciples that no servant is greater than his master, that if they have hated him, 
they will hate you. He doesn't say if they've loved me, they're going to love you. He says, no servant is greater than his master. If they've hated me, they're going to hate you. I had a friend in seminary, and I think he was in some ways naive and willing to say what many others in his position thought but had the sense not to say. He worked with a national youth organization in high school, and he was talking to a group of us in, in a class we had, and he said he was really leading this one girl to God by giving her permission to sin if she only did it half as much as she had been doing. He said, I told her that God will be happy and I'll be happy with her if she cuts her sin in half. There was a particular sin that she was committing. Well, of course we want her to commit less sin. But in the end, you are not a halfway house. You don't have the right to make people feel a little more comfortable in their sin. You're called to represent your master, and your master has said, teach them to obey everything that I commanded. The job of an ambassador and a disciple of Jesus is simply to faithfully represent their master. We don't present ourselves as anything more important than a faithful slave or a messenger. You've gone to weddings. And every once in a while you go to a wedding where it becomes clear during the toast or in some other way during the wedding that the maid of honor actually thinks she's cooler than the bride and would rather have the spotlight on her that day. Have you been at a wedding like this? Sometimes it comes out in the, in the speech. How many of you have been at a wedding like this? It's so clear. This is not your role. This is not your calling. You are not cooler than Jesus. Your job is to serve him faithfully and to present his glory to the people. And to talk about the glories of Jesus and not to steal the spotlight as though it's actually your spotlight and you divert some of the glory to him. That is not your job. Second, Jesus does not command here that you be, he doesn't want you to be winsome as though you're the halfway house on the way to heaven. Jesus, neither does he want you or command you to be a learned witness. He does not order a degree in apologetics. He doesn't demand that you go through the full trivium of a classical education or have great cultural awareness and literacy in order to effectively witness to the world for him. The power he had is the power we have. Our strength is his strength. Our authority is his authority. We do not go with human degrees, human wealth, human power, human wisdom. The king, and that is what Christ is, the king who made the earthly rock on which he built his church, a crude Galilean fisherman, is the Lord who calls you to use what he has given you, not what you don't have and think you must have to witness him, what he has given you to serve him as a slave. Truth does not need adornment. Human logic, no matter how much of it you gain, will never explain the sovereignty of God 
or the sinfulness of man in a way that really gets to the heart. You need the Holy Spirit. We need to know the truth. We need to be convinced that the truth is powerful. Truth is all the Apostle Paul had. His preaching, just like Christ, just like John the Baptist, was simple and declarative. When God speaks through you, you don't need degrees, you don't need training, you don't need attractiveness. You need mothers, you need fathers, you need teachers and elders and deacons and pastors. You need only to trust your master and faithfully declare his word. Third, Jesus does not command good works as the means of winning the world. You understand this. He doesn't say go out and do good. He doesn't say go out and feed the hungry. He doesn't say go out and build wells in the Saharan desert. He doesn't say these things. Now, you may do these things as a part of loving the world, but this is not the method that Jesus gives for winning disciples to him. He says, baptize and teach. Teach obedience, not make wells, not raise crops. Teach the word of God is the center of making disciples. Jesus does not command us to go and do good deeds, but to go and teach the world that it must do good deeds. You understand this. John the Baptist went out preaching. He required those who heard his message to repent. It's the message of the entire New Testament. Jesus came preaching repentance. Repent, go to God for forgiveness, be baptized, ask God to change you and obey. Listen to John the Baptist, who Jesus said that had no superior, a man born of woman, not a greater has arisen than John the Baptist, Jesus says. What did John the Baptist do now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar? Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Turia and Trachonitis, Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, you understand, the Bible is building this guy by giving such a long statement of times and kings and rulers, they're saying, and this guy was greater than them all. Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Philip, Herod. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John son of Zacharias in the wilderness and he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it's written in the words of Isaiah the prophet the voice of one crying in the wilderness make ready the way of the Lord make his path straight every ravine will be filled every mountain and hill brought low crooked becomes straight the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God so he, that is John, began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him. What did he say? Oh, you lovely people. It's so nice that we're here together. Oh, you wonderful people. You obviously care because you've come out to hear my word. Oh, you good people. You are the righteous ones. He began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Is this a design for discipleship? Is this truly the way you lead people to Jesus? 
you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? You are a viper, and I am a viper, and we're all part of the brood of vipers. And that's all we are, unless Jesus has made us new. Unless Jesus has covered us with his blood and washed us, we are in that viper pit. We can't free it up. We can't make it more or better than it is. We are a brood of vipers. And we must understand that, that we are a viper, a former viper, going to vipers when we go to make disciples. And the wrath of God is looming large. No disciple can honestly make disciples who are true followers of Jesus without having writ large in his consciousness the reality that there is a wrath to come. There is a wrath coming. And when there's a wrath coming, winsomeness doesn't cut the mustard. You don't smile at the little girl who's standing by the edge of the road about to walk into the path of a truck. You scream and grab. You use your authority and strength and power. You don't smile and say, here's sweetie, sweetie, sweetie. We do not win the world by doing good, but by preaching and teaching the love of God in Christ. Two generations ago, when the evangelical church in America stood against the liberal false religion of the mainline churches, it accused them. What they claimed as a name that was a name of honor, a badge of honor, became to the evangelical church a name of shame. The liberals said they were preaching what was known as the social gospel. They were going around and saying, the gospel means you get to live a better life. And so they did. The liberals were behind prohibition and things like that, you know? A better life, a better way. And our fathers in faith hated that social gospel. They said, we are not called to win the world to a nice Jesus by the niceness of our deeds by teaching a goodness that men are capable of. We are called to make disciples by preaching the sinfulness of man, the wrath of God, and by calling depraved men to embrace the only source of righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ, in repentance, and then to obey the commands of Christ. That's what our forefathers just 80 years ago said. And now the the evangelical church that you and I are part of is the church of the social gospel. We go out and do our good deeds. We're transforming society. We're doing all sorts of things against racism, against greed, against this, against that, all of which are good things and all of which are things we should do, but it is not the gospel. The world is not transformed by the teaching or doing of good deeds, but by teaching words that come with authority from servants of Christ who are living under that authority themselves. How do we follow this second part of the Great Commission of Christ? Two steps. First, we submit to the authority of Jesus ourselves. Second, we call and teach and command that others do likewise. This is how disciples are made in the kingdom of Christ. Obedient men and women calling those outside the kingdom to enter 
through baptism and to render obedience to a great king. Remember, this is the Jesus, the Jesus who, as Matthew is telling the story, had just died and rose from the dead, died for human sins, your sins. This is that Jesus, the Jesus who died knowing your name with you written on his palms as he suffered, your name, your sins. This is that Jesus who says to you, obey me, teach others to obey me, obey me, obey everything I taught you, everything. And so I want to end by being very simple. There's this great letter that John writes about the glories of the Christian life. And he, he writes this letter about knowing the Son of God, about confession, confessing our sins and being delivered by that confession. And he ends by saying, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Great way to end a book, right? Great way to end a letter. But that's not how it ends. There's one more sentence. That last sentence is, little children, guard yourselves from idols. He's not sticking with the big truths and not coming down to the little acts of abuse. Guard yourselves from idols. Jesus said, love your enemy and pray for them. That's part of his command. Are you loving your enemies? If you're a disciple of Jesus and you're not, you make that right today. Are you turning from idols? If you love Jesus and you believe in him, you turn off the internet so that you do not end up on Instagram worshiping idols or on a porn site. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let us pray.